0: Brent, love to get to know you after the service, Um, but wonderful to be able to open up the word with you. Well, Nicholas Wolterstorff was born on January 21st, 1932, to Dutch immigrants in the small farming community of Bigelow, Minnesota, population 200. (laughs) He grew up in a deeply committed Christian family and enjoyed the close relationships of a very tight-knit community there. And he recalled as a child the rich liturgy of his upbringing, the the small country church that he was in that was so deeply committed to the gospel. And this is what he says. He says, The view that only the fresh and innovative is meaningful had not invaded this transplant of the Dutch Reformed tradition in Bigelow, Minnesota. He said, Through repetition... Elements of the liturgy and of scripture sank their roots so deep into my consciousness that nothing thereafter could remove them. Nicholas reflected later that his upbringing made him deeply aware of sin, of salvation in Jesus Christ, and of the proper response of repentance and gratitude and worship, now, he came from generations of woodworkers and carpenters, and, and, and he was a brilliant young man, and, and after, uh, shortly after he had moved to Edgerton, Minnesota, in his teen years, he quickly advanced in school, and he had earned an opportunity to go to Calvin College, and he graduated in 1953, and then went on to earn advanced degrees at Harvard. For 30 years, Nicholas Wolterstorff taught philosophy and theology, and He earned this reputation as a leading thinker and and theologian. and, And life seemed to be going really well for him and his wife, Claire, and their five kids. Until one day, when he received some terrible news. His oldest son, Eric, had died in a mountain climbing accident at the age of 25. This news was like a tidal wave, engulfing, overwhelming Nicholas and, and Claire, and engulfing them in confusion and loss and grief. And they asked these questions, how could this happen to someone that we love? How could this happen to us? And as, as Nicholas began processing his grief, he leaned on a long-remembered truth from his childhood, the Heidelberg Catechism, which we read the first question of this morning. He said these words. These words, decades later, continued to echo in the chambers of my heart. What is my only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Over the next year after this event, he wrote a book called Lament for a Son. And this is what he says in this book. He says, suffering is a mystery as deep as any in our existence. Suffering often keeps its face hid from each while making itself known to all. Some are wealthy, some bright, some athletic, some admired, but we all suffer for we all prize and love, and in this present existence of ours, prizing and loving yields suffering. Love in our world is a suffering love. Maybe you feel this. Maybe you know this kind of suffering love. Maybe it's something that you've experienced that you can understand or identify with, with what Wolterstorff feels. Maybe you feel this when you're caring for a child with an ongoing illness or special need. Maybe you feel this when you're taking care of an aging parent or dealing with a difficult boss or coworker or enduring an unkind neighbor or trying to heal a dysfunctional marriage or parenting a strong-willed child or helping one of your kids who's made some bad choices or longing to connect with a distant sibling or seeking out an estranged friend. If that sounds like you, maybe you've struggled with this kind of love. See, Nicholas Wolterstorff struggled in the suffering love of his grief of the loss of his son. You see, what he came to understand is something profound about how he considered the kind of love that we experience through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Real love is costly and self-giving. It's a suffering love because of the stark reality of the curse of sin. And so real love... Elevates the beloved, sacrifices for the beloved, suffers for the beloved. And this is precisely what we see Jesus explaining and demonstrating to his disciples in the upper room on the eve of his own suffering and death. The very Son of God washes feet, taking the very role of the lowliest servant foreshadowing his march to the cross the next morning. The sinless one atoning for our sin. And so then he gives, as we've seen the text unfold over chapters 13 and 14, he gives this command that reflects his own commitment to us as Savior. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Friends, what he's calling us to is a costly, self-giving, generous, sacrificial love. And now that we've seen, and we looked at last week, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus takes this idea of costly love to the ultimate level. In our text this morning... He commands us to love him with a, with a costly obedience that is only possible through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So, grab your Bible. Open with me to John chapter 14. We're going to be in John 14 today looking at verses 15 to 31. If you need a copy of the Bible, please raise your hand. Uh, I I hope you see, we'd love to have you see the copy uh, or see the text for yourself this morning and, and follow along so that you can have God's word in your own hands. Now, as we open to this text, we are in the middle of Jesus's farewell to his disciples. And we're seeing this unfolding revelation of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and, 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 and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and this morning's passage is critical for how we understand the Trinity, how we understand and introduce the person of the Holy Spirit and the promise that Jesus gives. And so what I'm going to do is read our text here and see this call to costly love and obedience that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let's read together John 14. Verses 15 to 31. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. All this I've spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Okay. This is the word of the Lord. Here's what we're going to do as we tackle this, as we go through this passage today. We're going to first understand Jesus' command to love him by obeying his teaching. Then we're going to walk through the specific promises of the Holy Spirit, of the person of the Holy Spirit, and start to understand that this morning. So let's jump in and and spend some time talking about Jesus' command. Now, Jesus repeats the central command of this passage three times. The first, in verse 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commands. Then verse 21, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Then verses 23 to 24, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. I want you to see, and I underlined them here on the screen for you. Do you see the direct link between love and keep or obey? How are we supposed to understand this connection? Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. How are we supposed to understand this, especially in light of the gospel? Is Jesus describing a works-based way of loving him? Is our obedience the measure of our love for Jesus? Okay, let's think about this for a moment. Okay, I want to talk to you about how Jesus characterizes loving him and obeying him elsewhere in the gospels. Just listen to these that are probably very familiar Commands are familiar things that Jesus says from the Gospels. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In Matthew 16. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. In Luke 9. And anyone who has left their house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife or child or field for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Matthew 19. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Matthew 20. And whoever wants to be first must be last and the servant of all. Mark 9. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. That's Matthew 5. And he goes on in Matthew 5 to say, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Ask, give to anyone who asks. Love your enemies. Don't store up for yourselves treasures in, on earth, but store up your treasures in heaven. Don't worry about your life. Enter through the narrow gate, for small is the gate, and narrow the life or the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Should I go on? Do you see... The intense, full devotion and calling that Jesus has on our lives. Friends, here's what I want you to see. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is inviting you to full surrender and full devotion to him. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Don't try and be first, be the servant of all. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. He says, lose your life for me and you'll save it. Friends, what he desires, this is what's so key here. It's a matter of your heart. It's a matter of the integrity when you say you follow Jesus and then you examine your life and you see that Jesus really isn't Lord of your life. He wants your whole heart and your whole life. And so when Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, keep my commands, we have to remember the context of the upper room and the impending cross. Jesus is about to go pay the penalty for our sin to satisfy the wrath that we deserved, to purchase us by his blood to be his sons and daughters of God who are forgiven and covered by his righteousness as an act of pure mercy and grace. It is a gift So that no one can boast. In other words, when Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. A gospel-centered understanding of this call to love Jesus is not about earning God's favor to be saved. It's about realizing you've received God's unmerited favor already through Christ and now going And understanding that you have the distinct privilege of returning gratitude and love to God in a full surrender of your life and obedience of every part of you to the Lordship of Jesus. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Costly Discipleship. He wrote a classic book that I'd highly recommend called The Cost of Discipleship. And what he does is he explains in this book that following Jesus with real love and real devotion is a costly love. It's a self-giving love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that demands your whole life precisely because Jesus gave up his life for us. In other words, he says, we don't believe in cheap grace. As though you can trust in Jesus for your salvation, get your get-out-of-hell-free card, and then live however you want. He says we need to examine whether we really deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Do you remember, as we were talking about Nicholas Wolterstorff's insight into suffering love, in this fallen and sinful world, what Jesus is communicating, what he's what he's feeling, what he sees in the troubled faces of his disciples, is that to truly love him as they go after his death and resurrection and ascension, for them to truly love him and walk in his commands in the world that they're going to live in is to risk insult, is to possibly be disowned, And it's to give up their preferences, to lay down their plans, to go where he wants them to go, to open their hearts, to align with God's heart, to care about what God cares about, even if it means you encounter pain and difficulty and suffering in this world while we wait for Christ's return to take us home where he's preparing a place for us. How do we do this? How do we walk in obedience and love to Jesus knowing that it's hard? This is a tall order. And at this moment in the upper room, Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's calling them to a costly devotion to him. Knowing that they're going to encounter persecution, pain, and difficulty in this world. Friends, we have to recognize, and I feel this when I read this text, that faithfulness to Jesus is hard. That this world is often wearisome and scary. Well Are we supposed to pursue loving and obeying Jesus on our own strength? If Jesus is leaving, as he says in, in chapter 14, to go to heaven to prepare a place for us, are we left alone to obey him ourselves? Dear friends, let me just... Encourage you, what Jesus says here in verse 27 do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He has sent His Comforter, the Counselor, the Advocate, His Holy Spirit. Let's talk about what this text says about the person of the Holy Spirit. There's a key word that's repeated. Twice in this text, and it's the word advocate to describe the Holy Spirit, okay? This word advocate means one who is called to someone's aid or one who appeals on behalf of another. Sometimes it's used in the legal context and often it's not, but it means that you come alongside someone and you, you come to their aid, their help, their comfort, and their defense. It's a deeply personal word. And the key to understanding it is grasping your desperate helplessness and need. There's a, a pastor I uh, was reading who's kind of commenting on this chapter of John 14 this week, uh, Dane Ortland, and this is what he writes about this. He says, fallen human beings are natural self-advocates. It, it flows out of us. He says, we don't need to teach young children to make excuses when they're caught misbehaving. There's a natural built-in mechanism that immediately kicks into gear to explain that it really wasn't my fault. Do you see that? Do you feel that? He says our fallen hearts intuitively manufacture reasons to, to plead why our case isn't really as bad as it is. He says the curse of sin is manifested not only in our being sinners, but in our response to sin. We minimize it. We excuse it. We explain it away. We speak in our own defense often. He says we try to advocate for ourselves. But friends, that is hopeless. Self-advocacy is about trying to be good enough for God. It's about rationalizing our sin so we can say that we could overcome it ourselves. And then we attempt to present ourselves to God as one who's able to keep Jesus' commands. But in the gospel, we don't have to hide our weakness and our failure. Having an advocate in the person of the Holy Spirit is about... Realizing that, that, that weakness and failure, it's about finding that you have someone who pleads your case purely by grace based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about to have the Holy Spirit as your defender, as your advocate, as your friend. It's about who God is in the midst of your sin and difficulty as he gives us his spirit to bring his comfort and his hope and his joy and to enable and empower us to overcome. You see, this is what Dane Ortlund goes on to say. He says, we have an advocate, a comforting defender, one nearer than we know. And his heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin, not after we get over it. We have an advocate who knows exhaustively just how fallen we are. And yet at the same time is able to make a better defense than we ever could. No blame shifting, no excuses, perfectly just pointing to Christ's own all-sufficient sacrifice and suffering on the cross for you and me. So friends, in light of Jesus' call to love and obey him in this passage knowing that when you trust in Christ by faith, when you're a blood-bought sinner in need of transformation and sanctification unto Christ's likeness, this is why Jesus focuses so much on the intimate presence of the Holy Spirit. God has sent His Spirit to come to our aid. If you feel broken, lost, confused, alone away, like separated from God in some way, or that, as Nicholas Wolterstorff said, that the darkness is closing in and you're struggling to see. God has sent his intimate presence by his spirit to come to your aid in the midst of your pain, your brokenness, your sin, and your failure. Friends, he has not left us alone to try to self-advocate, Without the gift of the Holy Spirit and the person of the Holy Spirit, if Jesus were to say, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, we would be shackled with the burden of that. To have to try and conjure up the strength of that on our own. But in the very next breath, he says that his own personal presence and transforming power are at work within us. Even while we find ourselves in a world where when we obey Jesus, it's a suffering love. You have an advocate and a comforter. We can daily embrace in the gospel our helplessness and need. We don't have to pretend that we're good enough that we can strength, uh, conjure up the strength on our own. But truly know that loving Jesus we are fully dependent on the Spirit's regenerating and sanctifying power. Friends, there is so much that could be said out of this passage. I was, as I was studying and preparing for this message, it became really clear to me as I was, as I was preparing that I think we need to spend two weeks on this passage. So I'm going to kind of call an audible, and we're going to come back next week to go even deeper on the entirety of chapter 14 because last week the exclusivity of Jesus and the relationship he has with the Father, and then this week the proceeding and sending of the Holy Spirit, there is so much to discover and uncover about what is so beautiful about the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Heavenly Father, redeeming us by the Son and sending his Spirit. And so we're going to come back next week and do that, so you'll have to come back for the dramatic conclusion. Here's what I want to do this morning, because this text is so rich in drawing us into this understanding of the Holy Spirit as our advocate, our defender, and the peace that we have in God's personal presence, is I simply want to remind you of the promises that Jesus declares in this text. Friends, be encouraged of the comforting and advocating person of the Holy Spirit, that these are, when we have a sincere desire to follow Jesus in the challenges and difficulties and pain of this world, these are the promises that Jesus has given us in this text. Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will help you and will be with you forever. Whoa! Forever! His presence with you. To help you. Friends, Jesus promises that He will not leave you as an orphan, but that He will come into intimate fellowship with you, breathing life into you by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, Jesus promises to love you, to reveal Himself to you, so that you will see and know Him personally. Friends, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will teach you and remind you of everything that He said. Jesus promises to give you His peace, His shalom, that is deeper and richer and will endure forever, unlike the peace offered by this world. And Jesus promises that He's coming back, and that in that truth we should rejoice. Friends, these promises, and you've seen them as we've listed them verse by verse, these promises that Jesus has spoken are yours when you come to him by saving faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to be forgiven of your sins, born again to be a new creation, whose heart is transformed to love Jesus with a costly, self-giving, fully surrendered love. This is what Jesus is calling us to by his Spirit in real discipleship. Let's pray. Lord, we need your comfort and encouragement. I think across this room, whether it's the story that was shared about Nicholas Wolterstorff and the pain and suffering and loss, or whether there's other things in our lives we look at and we see that we sometimes all we see is darkness, or we, we still hold on to a pain from the past, or we feel stuck in sin, Lord, there are so many ways that our hearts are hurting And the promise, I just think of that moment in the upper room where, Lord Jesus, you looked at your disciples in the eyes and you said, do not be afraid, don't be troubled, I will be with you by the Spirit. Take comfort and find joy and peace in this, that you are not alone. We need that encouragement this morning. Lord, I pray for each dear brother and sister here today that as we come to you in saving faith, that as we have the indwelling of your very presence and power by the person of the Holy Spirit, you would bring that encouragement and comfort and joy to each one of us to worship and glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.